Immigration and citizenship laws are complicated, but advocates are upset by how long it takes USCIS to process unlawful presence waivers. So much so, the American Immigration Council recently filed suit against the Biden administration. For details, we turn to the council's legal director of litigation, Kate Gettle. Ms. Gettle, good to have you with us. Nice to be with you, Tom. And you are talking about something known as a waiver for unlawful presence. So this would be something, for example, if a refugee came in a hurry and needed to get into the country, there's a process for ensuring that they can stay legally until a hearing or tell us the process here. Yeah. So this is mainly affecting people who have some period of unlawful status in the United States who then go and marry either a U.S. citizen or a legal permanent resident. Because they have a period of unlawful status in the United States, they can't immediately adjust their status based on that marriage. They have to exit the country and they have to go to a consulate abroad to get that visa. The problem is that for people who have a period of unlawful status, particularly those who've been here for a year or more, there's going to be a bar that kicks in that's going to bar them from returning for three or in most cases, 10 years. So they can apply for a waiver of that bar. And in the olden days before 2013, they would have to do it from abroad as they were going through this consulate process, leaving them separated from their family for some period of time. In 2013, a new rule was enacted by the Department of Homeland Security that allowed them to do that here in the United States. Those waivers are what we're suing over in this lawsuit. So there's a statutory basis for that ability to be able to apply for the waiver here in the United States. It's not simply rulemaking by the agency. It is rulemaking by the agency. So this would be a regulation as opposed to a statute. I see. And I guess there's some dispute over that at all going on. I mean, that outside of your lawsuit. <laughs> Yeah, there's there's really never been a dispute about this particular regulation. I'm sure, Tom, as you follow federal news, there's a dispute over a lot of regulations, but this one has been fairly uncontroversial. The reason it's pretty uncontroversial is it's really about family unity and keeping families together, which has been one spot where uh, both sides of the aisle tend to agree when it comes to immigration. And frankly, this was just a common sense way to make the process more efficient and work better. And just a detailed question before we get to the matter at hand. If someone comes to the United States with the intention of marrying someone here, that's not really family unity, though, is it? Because they're not married yet. Yeah, so this is that is a different sort of category of people. And so that those individuals would not fall under this lawsuit. There's actually a, a totally separate part of the immigration law that does allow for visas for fiancés to come here and get married. All right. Well, we could go on for hours about the arcana of immigration law. I wish I could, but the matter at hand is that you are suing USCIS, the Biden administration, the United States, over the length of time the waiver process takes. Is that the issue here? That's exactly right. And as I mentioned, this waiver started in 2013. From 2013 to 2018, everything was humming along beautifully, and people were getting these waivers decided within three to five months. Then that wait time started to go up. Um, At the end of the last year, we are now seeing wait times of three years. And so you have spouses of U.S. citizens and legal permanent residents waiting for three years with 
without work authorization and without, you know, being able to move forward with legal status in order to complete that processing of their marriage-based visa. And what do you feel is, or what's your hunch about why the process is taking so long? A lack of adjudicators to look at the applications or what, or the sheer volume of people? Well, the volume of people hasn't really changed over that period of time. So that we don't think is an issue. And unfortunately, the issue with these waivers is not in isolation. We're seeing delays across the board with applications and petitions with U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, the agency that decides petitions and applications for visa, for visa benefits. So the problem we think is that there needs to be better staffing, better resource allocation, and we're disappointed to see that Congress gave USCIS a lot of money last year for some of these precise issues of backlogs and slow processing. They were given almost $540 million last year and explicitly told that they need to speed up the processing times. We're speaking with Kate Gettle. She's legal director of litigation at the American Immigration Council. And what about the paperwork? How are these forms generated? Because paper sometimes takes a lot longer than online means. And USCIS seems to have been expanding its length and number of paper forms in recent years. That's right. And USCIS is moving towards some electronic filings, but by far they are still a paper-based agency, which is something that my organization and many immigrant advocates have been squawking about because we all know that this process can be a lot more efficient if applications are submitted electronically. But you're right that applications have been getting longer and there there needs to be a real effort to streamline applications, but I think more critically, get everything online, sure. like the rest of the world. Yeah, we've asked them about that, but the agency doesn't answer the emails or phone calls on that topic, at least so far. Let me ask you then, what specifically is the lawsuit seeking? So the lawsuit is seeking an order from a judge, uh, we filed this out in Seattle, to tell U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services to essentially hurry up and promptly adjudicate these waiver applications for our named plaintiffs and also for the entire class of people for whom they are subject to these delays. So if you look at our lawsuit, we named 248 people who are subject to these delays, but we also filed it as a class action. And of course, what that means is we're asking the judge to solve the problem for everyone who is impacted by this. Specifically, we said everyone who has a waiver pending for 12 months or more. Got it. And what has been the response so far that you're aware of from the government? And what's the status of the case at this point? Because sometimes it takes two, three years for a judge to make a decision on these things. Right. Well, we are going to have a hearing out in Seattle in March on that question of whether this can proceed as a class action. That's going to be our first chance to be in front of the judge and test out the government's arguments in response. And so right now we're still at the beginning of the lawsuit, but we do hope to be getting um, some preliminary rulings uh, promptly after that hearing in March. And what do you feel would be a reasonable turnaround? As you said, back in 2013, when this new rule was initiated, it was about three to five months. Is that what you'd like to see again? We would like to get back to those processing times. We're asking for six months. That, that, that seems like a reasonable period of time in which these 
applications should be decided. One other point about how quickly they should be decided is that these are not super long and complicated applications. You, you mentioned the, the lengthy applications that are often found with immigration forms. If you contrast this, say, to something like a naturalization application that is much longer and much more involved, which makes sense, you're trying to become a, a, a U.S. citizen, these are pretty short applications and can be decided relatively quickly. You know, this is sort of a good faith check to make sure that there is a marriage and it was approved by USCIS so that they can go abroad, get that visa, come back and get on with their lives. And once you become a permanent resident and say your desire is to become naturalized, then you don't have that pressure on you. I mean, if it takes another couple of months to get the naturalization papers in, it's not as big a deal if you are permanent resident status. That is exactly right. It, it it really gives a sense of security for a lot of people and um, really changes the game in terms of day-to-day life. Um, we have one of our um, named plaintiffs, for example, who's living in Utah right now. And in Utah, they allow for driver's license for people who are undocumented, but many of the states around Utah do not. And so he is afraid to move anywhere else because he can't drive and he can't, you know, help his family. And so there, we see a lot of really sort of tangible day-to-day consequences of not having that legal permanent residency, as you said, not to mention it is then taking them that much longer to become a naturalized U.S. citizen. Kate Gettle is Legal Director of Litigation at the American Immigration Council. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking Earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And, David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in, your, um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century 
educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama. And there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. And she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider 
leaving Morgan. It just reassured me that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we have been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.